0: Let's pray. God, we continue to just say thank you. Thank you for the privilege it is to be here in your house this morning. Uh, Your word, actually in several places, tells us that we were created to worship you. And so it is actually in this moment that we are doing literally what you created us to do. We thank you for the privilege it is to do that. I think about what Kimmerle just reminded us of, God, and how different this feels from a year ago. And while we recognize that um, things are not exactly how all of us would like them to look, you are a God of seasons, and you bring us through hard seasons. And we rejoice this morning, God, that uh, this Thanksgiving, this Thanksgiving we're able to worship together. Uh, Now, God, as we turn to your word, we just ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have for us. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it about who you are. And when we know who you are, we actually know who we are. So I pray that you would uh, speak to us. I pray, God, that anything that I have prepared that isn't from you, that you would just cut it out now. I pray, God, if there's something that you have for your people that I haven't prepared, that you would give it to me now. I pray that you would speak through me I pray that the truth and the beauty of your gospel, who you are and what you have done, will be communicated clearly this morning. We love you. We ask that you would help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's wonderful to be with you all. Again, welcome, welcome again to those who are watching online. Um, I am... Excited for a few days off this week. Anyone else? I see some hands. I'm excited to eat a bunch of food. Uh, and I also just want to say uh, how thankful I am to all of you for continuing to dig in here at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. Um, God has seen this church through a lot over the years. And, and one more notch in that belt is how he has seen us through COVID and this season. And uh, he is continuing to build this church. And it is a privilege and joy to be a part of it. And so I just want to say thank you to all of you who, uh, who continue to call this your home and are, are continuing to dig in and, and learn and grow and what it looks like uh, to live on mission for Jesus Christ. With that, we're in Mark. Shocker, huh? Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 23. Mark 7, 1 through 23, give you one minute to get there, and it will also show up on the the screen. Here's what it says. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Uh, In May of 2017, so about four and a half years ago, a brand new restaurant showed up on the TripAdvisor rankings of the top restaurants in the city of London. Now at the time, and and probably still is, uh, TripAdvisor was one of the most influential and widely referenced tourism websites in the world. It's US and British websites uh, got over 200 million visits a month. And also at that time, there were over 18,000 restaurants that were ranked in the city of London on TripAdvisor's website. This new restaurant that debuted May of 2017 was called The Shed at Dulwich, and it debuted in the dead last spot out of every restaurant in London. It was ranked 18,149th. It was billed as a small, exclusive, upscale restaurant. Uh, Pictures that were uploaded of the dishes showed really kind of Bougie, fancy plates, Uh, the the dishes were not titled uh, by what the food was in them, they were titled by emotions, so it was an emotive-based restaurant, so you could order dishes uh, like empathy and happiness and curiosity, and the reviews started to come in, and they were pretty good. Even the reviews from people who said something had gone wrong, the, the time of their reservation had been messed up, or the di- wrong dish had been sent out, they still ended up saying, but it was, a, it was a fabulous experience. And it started to move up in the rankings, and it actually started to move up pretty significantly, to where by August of that year, the shed at Dulwich was ranked like 156 out of over 18,000 restaurants in the city of London. Uh, at this point, the proprietor of the restaurant was getting uh, like samples from companies sent to him, asking him to you know use their stuff. Uh, he was getting requests for reservations from people all over the world, even though it seemed like it was impossible to get a reservation. Uh, the city of London actually reached out. They were doing a new development, and they asked if he would consider moving his restaurant into the new development that they were building. And then in the first week of November... The Shed at Dulwich proprietor got an email from TripAdvisor telling him that his page had been viewed over 89,000 times in one day, and it was now the number one rated restaurant in all of the city of London. It was an amazing success story, especially for this place that had been previously unheard of only six months prior. The success of the Shed at Dulwich was even more impressive when you find out that it did not exist there was no such restaurant as The Shed at Dulwich. The Shed at Dulwich was created by a freelance writer who lived in a backyard shed in the Dulwich area of London. He created a fake restaurant profile on TripAdvisor. He uploaded pictures of dishes that looked like they were really fancy food, but in actuality, they were bleach tablets and shaving cream. He bought a burner cell phone to serve as the phone number for the shed at Dulwich, and everyone who called to get a reservation, he simply told them they didn't have room, which only added to the mystique of the restaurant. (laughs) For the address, he did not give a house number, only the street that he lived on, which, again, did not raise red flags. It just added to the mystique and the exclusivity of the restaurant. And then he had friends and family begin to fill out fake reviews on TripAdvisor to the point that out of 18,149 restaurants, it was the number one rated restaurant in the city of London in 2017, but it did not exist. It's a true story. You can find videos of him on YouTube answering phone calls from people, and it's, it's kind of funny. He'll be like, did Jackie refer you? And he's like, oh, you don't know Jackie? Then I'm sorry, I can't get you into the restaurant. <laughs> He'll be like, how many Instagram followers do you have? And if they don't give him a high enough number, which is everyone, he says, nope, sorry, we don't have space at the restaurant. Now, we could draw out a lot of, um, a lot of things from that story, right? Like, the first one is, don't believe everything you read online, yeah. right? That's not where we're going this morning, but you, that's just a freebie. You can, you can take that one with you. And even I, like when I'm shopping for stuff online, I, I tend to look at the reviews. And a lot of them aren't real, which the shed adult, which makes really obvious, but here's the thing I do want to draw out from, the, from that story about the shed at Dulwich. It looked really good on the outside. On. Like amazingly good on the outside. Everyone, wanted, everyone, everyone who was everyone wanted a reservation at the shed at Dulwich because it was the hot spot and it looked amazing. But there was nothing on the inside. There was no there there. It was a fraud. It was, a, it was a joke, it was a performance. Think about all the real restaurants in the city of London. Think about all the, the I don't, I've never been to London, all the Michelin-starred restaurants, all the, the chefs who studied in Paris and have amazingly exclusive high-end restaurants, and this place that didn't even exist, that was made up by some kid living in a backyard ADU, outranked all of them, and yet it was a fraud. There was no there there. And before we kind of get up on our high horse and, and kind of look down our noses at this prankster, and he did get criti- criticized for it, he also got a lot of praise for it for exposing kind of how broken the system was. If I can just try and bring it a little bit closer to home, I think we all have a little bit of the shed at Dulwich in each of our lives. I think we all have areas of our life where we are presenting an image publicly that does not line up with who we actually are privately. I think for some of us, that's in a few areas of our life. For most of us, it's in a lot of areas of our lives. And for some of us, it's in every area of our lives. We live in a world that loves a good performance. And it is hard for us not to fall into that trap of performing. Anyone who does social media, you understand this. Social media is not real. Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) Instagram. it It is a curated picture of what the owner of that account wants people to see. And even if you're here this morning and you're like, I post the pictures of my dirty dishes in the sink. I post selfie videos of me crying when I'm upset. I would say you are still curating some type of image. We do it at work. Listen, especially in a place like the Bay Area, we really know how to perform. But part of why some of us are so successful in our jobs is because we are so good at being who we think they want us to be. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. But there is a challenge when who we present publicly is not who we are privately. We do it at school, we do it in our social circles, we do it with our neighbors, and and come on, we do it at church, and we do it with God. But the problem with that, the problem with presenting one image publicly that does not match who we are privately is that that is not how we are intended to live this life. We are not intended to be performers. We are not intended to show the world one thing that is different from who we really are, but we are so tempted to it because I would say inside of each of us is a, is a deep longing to be fully known and fully loved. But for so many of us, there's a hesitation to be fully known because we're like, if other people really knew who I was, if God really knew who I was, there is no way that I could be fully loved. Even though it doesn't seem like it on the surface, I actually think that this is what the passage that we just read is about. I think this is a passage about performing. It's a passage about showing the world one thing that is different from who we really are. It's a passage talking about situations like the shed at Dulwich. Uh, as we get to this passage in Mark 7, 1 through 23, this is the longest of what scholars call conflict speeches in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, excuse me, Mark. What's a conflict speech? It's a speech that speaks to conflict. And this is the longest one we get, which gives us a clue as to its importance. And what is the conflict that we are looking at? The Pharisees and the scribes have come to Jesus. They are criticizing his disciples, but can we recognize what they're really criticizing is him? And Jesus goes in hard on them, maybe as hard as he goes in on anyone in the whole Gospel of Mark. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees are approaching life. They are approaching following God with a shed at Dulwich mentality. They are trying to look good on the outside. And Jesus says that is not the way it is supposed to work. I've titled this sermon, I don't know if it's been up there yet, Clean Hands and Dirty Hearts. Because that is what the scribes and the Pharisees were walking with. Their hands were clean. On the outside, they looked good. But on the inside, there was a lot of brokenness. We're going to see three things in this passage that God wants from us. Actually, we're going to see two things that God does not want from us. And then we're going to see one thing that God does want from us. So, first thing I want us to see in this passage is that God does not want our rules. God does not want our rules. Let's turn back to the text. So here's Jesus. Uh, You know, it's funny. Uh, Very often in my sermons, some of you will probably pick up on this, I will say something about the context of the passage. Like, we gotta look at this passage in light of what we read last week or two weeks ago. A couple of the scholars I read this week were like, this passage has nothing to do with the passage that came before it. So don't need to worry about what came before it. If you're here just for today, this this can stand alone. Uh, Here's Jesus. Pharisees and the scribes come to him. They see that his disciples are not doing the ceremonial washing of their hands before they eat that was expected. Uh, When Mark says in verse 3, the Pharisees and all Jews do not eat, that was probably hyperbole. It probably wasn't every Jew, but many Jews from the influence of the Pharisees and the religious leaders did the ceremonial washing of their hands before they ate. They come to Jesus in verse 5, and they say to him, why do your disciples, really what they're saying is why do you, not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, to get an idea of what's going on here, we need just a quick history lesson. And I know some eyes are glossing over there, but it's going to be quick. God saved his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, and he took them into the wilderness, and he met with them where? Mount Sinai. Came down in fire. Moses went up on the mountain. God met with Moses. And what did God give Moses when he met with him on Sinai? The Ten Commandments, but also a bunch of other I hate to use the word rules, but rules, regulations, guidelines for living. Because what was happening at Mount Sinai in the wilderness is that Yahweh, the one true God, was making a covenant with the people of Israel. He was entering into a covenantal relationship with them. He said, I'm gonna be your God. You're gonna be my people. And he gave them guidelines for what that was going to look like for them to be the people set apart from the other peoples of the earth to be God's special chosen people. That was what he gave Moses on Mount Sinai and it came to be known as the Mosaic Law. Mosaic, Moses, Law. Rules, regulations, guidelines for living. And that is what regulated how the, the Israelite people lived or were supposed to live. For those who know the rest of the story, it didn't go great, but that's how they were supposed to live. That was over a thousand years before we get to this moment where the Pharisees and the scribes have come to Jesus. And in that intervening period, a second set of rules has cropped up. It was called the oral law. So the religious leaders of Israel saw the Mosaic Law, the rules that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai, and they said to themselves, those are not very clear. We need to come up with some more rules and regulations that help us understand how to carry out life under the Mosaic Law. So there was the written law, the Torah, which we still have in our Bible today in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But there was also the oral law, the Mishnah, which was they called it the fence around the written law. If the written law, the Mosaic law, was what to do, the oral law was how to do it. But here's the problem. The oral law did not come from God. He did, not give it to it, he did not give it to Moses on Mount Sinai. A bunch of people came up with it to help them do what they thought was the right thing in interpreting the Mosaic law. So when we get further down into this passage and we see this word tradition, shows up five times in this passage, that is not just kind of the way we've always done things, though in a sense it is. It is referring to this oral law that by the time we get to Jesus was held to be just as binding as the written law. The, the, the devout Jews saw them to be just as important as each other. And here comes Jesus, and he comes into the middle of that debate about the oral law and the written law, and he just lights a little atom bomb on fire and lets it explode. Look at what he says. Three, three different verses. Verse 8, Jesus says to them, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the what? Tradition of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish what? Your tradition. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your Tradition. That you have handed down, and many such things you do. Here's the thing about the, the oral law. Or, or excuse me, here's the thing about the written law, the, the Mosaic Law. It did have provisions for hand washing before you ate, but it was only for the priests. And here's what happened. In the oral law, they brought it over to everyone. And they said, Well, if the priest should do it, everyone should do it. And Jesus is like, No, 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 no. That's that's not what it says. Here's what he's saying: I don't want your rules. I don't, you, you guys have added a bunch of rules, a bunch of extra stuff that God did not ask of you, and you don't need to be bringing that up in here. I don't want that. Time does not permit us to dig into verses 9 through 13, this thing about Corbin and devoting things to God. It's the same idea. You could devote something to God and then keep it for yourself until you died, but no one could touch it And per, per the oral law. And so they were using that to not have to actually support their elderly parents because they'd already committed it to God. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you've missed the whole point. I don't want your extra rules. They had created something that didn't really look like what God had intended when he set out, here's how I want your lives to look when you follow me. Imagine for a moment, and for some of you, I know you're going to need to suspend your disbelief. Imagine for a moment that you were playing in a pickup basketball game. I love basketball. Picked up my sixth grader from school one day this week and she said they played basketball in gym and I was like, yes, and she was like, I hate basketball. <laughs> okay, imagine you're playing a pickup game of basketball and there's someone in that game who, who decides that they need to import the rules of soccer into the pickup basketball game that you are playing. And so the game starts and, and someone's dribbling down the court and they start freaking out going, no, 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 no. You have to use your feet. You can't use your hands. And then someone takes a shot and they go, no, 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 you, you can't shoot like that. you got to bounce it off of your head. And then because they're trying to bring soccer rules into it, anytime someone comes within a six-foot radius of them, they drop to the floor and clutch their ankle and writhe in pain. <laughs> a few soccer fans in here. Whatever, now, now, now imagine that that person is not an anomaly, but they actually convince everyone else in that basketball game, that that is the way you're supposed to play basketball. And all of a sudden it becomes this deal where you're on a basketball court kicking a ball with your feet, trying to head it into the hoop. Might be fun, might be entertaining, it's not basketball. It doesn't resemble, it's just this strange, uh, crazy hybrid that it, it looks a little bit like basketball, but it's not basketball. And that is what had happened to the Israelite culture by the time we get to Jesus, especially at the high levels of religious leaders. They had taken what God intended. They had taken how God intended life to be done, and they had imported all these extra rules and guidelines and expectations to the point that it did not even resemble what God had intended for his people, and that is why Jesus goes in so hard on on these religious leaders. And here's the thing. It is really tempting for us to do the same thing it is really tempting for us, especially those of us who've been in church for a while, to start adding in extra rules, extra guidelines, extra expectations that God never intended. What are you supposed to wear when you go to church? Well, hopefully clothes, yeah, that's good. What's, what's the worship supposed to be like? What's the type of language that you're supposed to use when you're here? What's the pastor supposed to be like? Somebody's like, not this guy. (laughs) What's he supposed to say? What's he supposed to do? Are we supposed to wear our Sunday best when we go to church? It is really tempting for us to add on a bunch of extra stuff that actually doesn't show up in God's word. It is why it is so critical that this is not a book that just gathers dust on your shelf at home. It is why it is so critical that the only time you hear God's word, that, that, that Sunday morning, when the pastor reads the scripture, that is not the only time in the week that you are exposed to God's word. Because God's call on our lives is to follow this. It is not to follow extra stuff that is outside of this, but it's very easy for us to get confused. And that is why it is so critical that we know this book because we are called to be discerning enough to know the difference between what God calls us to and what someone else has called us to. We are not here, what we are doing, we are not following God in order to impress other people. We are following God in order to impress him and we'll get to more of that in a minute. But we gotta know the difference. God is like, I don't want your rules, okay? So don't bring up your extra rules in this place. Second thing I want us to see in this passage, God is telling us, I don't want your performance. I don't want your performance. So sandwiched in between this discussion of the washing of hands, the ceremonial washing of hands, and this discussion of Corbin and devoting things to God to get out of the greater rules, Jesus starts off his response to the the Pharisees and the scribes by saying this. He quotes Isaiah, verse six. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That word hypocrite, that is uh, basically, that's not an English word, that's basically a transliteration of the Greek word that is found in the original Greek text of Mark. Hypocrite was a word that came from Greek theater. It was used of the performers in the Greek theater, and the way the Greek theater worked is that the performers would use masks to represent the different characters that they were playing. So a hypocrite was someone who wore a mask to pretend to be somebody that they were not. And Jesus is saying, You are hypocrites. Because you are pretending to be something that you are not. Listen, and it's really important, I think, to, to, to notice this. Jesus was not going after their devotion. He was he was not criticizing they were devotion, their their lack of devotion. They were very devoted. They just were devoted to the wrong things. They were devoted to the wrong rules. They were devoted to the lesser things rather than the weightier things. And so Jesus is coming to them. That that word hypocrite, he's like saying, Don't perform. Stop performing. I'm not, I'm not here for you to put on a good show. I'm not interested in the shed at Dulwitch approach to life. I do not want your performance. Uh, Now, over the last several decades, uh, every statistic indicates, every article you read, every survey that you read indicates that there has been just a steady decline in uh, church attendance, church affiliation, um, uh, associations with houses of worship. That's not just true for uh, evangelical Christianity or mainline Christianity. That's true for all sorts of houses of worship, places of religion. But don't be deceived Do not think that means that we are a less worshipful society. We are still worshiping. We're just worshiping at different places. And one of the centers of worship in our culture, maybe the center of worship in our culture, is just about a six-hour drive down the 101. And that is Hollywood. Hollywood has more influence on our society, and I would argue more influence on people in our churches than I think God's word does. There are more people being discipled by Netflix and HBO than they are by God's word. And Hollywood is, a, is an industry of hypocrites. And I don't mean that in the critical sense. I mean it in the literal Greek theater sense. It is an industry-based, built, on pretending to be somebody that you're not. And it is like, for most of our world, it is the height of success. It is the height of what we are searching to become and achieve. Wealth, prosperity, fame, fortune, all of those things. And I'm telling you right now, it's empty. It is, it is, a, it is a living, breathing shed at Dulwich because it looks so good on the outside and yet there is so much brokenness on the inside. And we get really tempted to bring that into our walk with Jesus. We are so influenced by our world and by our culture and by this desire to perform. We live in a world where it is better to look good than to be good. And it is so tempting to bring that into the church. It is so tempting to bring that into our walk with God. Listen, I I, I need to be careful here because I don't want to get emails this week. (laughs) But can we talk about our Sunday best? I get it. I totally get it. And I kind of grew up with that idea that you get dressed up for church and you look your best for church and and there is something to be said for you are entering into the presence of a holy God and you give him the honor and respect that his due his name. But think about the message that that sends that we have to bring our Sunday best to church. I would actually argue it is antithetical to what the message of the gospel is because that's saying we got to look our best for church we gotta, we got to dress up better than we normally would. And that is not just physically. That is emotionally and relationally. we got to put our best face forward when we enter into God's house. But that is not what we are called to do. <laughs> Jesus is saying, don't be hypocrites. Amen. Come as you are. Amen. Take." <laughs> this is the place where we need to take off the masks, not put them on because God is not calling us to perform. He is calling us to come as we are. He he doesn't want our rules. He doesn't want our performance. The last thing is because God wants our heart. God wants our heart. We find this in the last uh, eight verses, nine verses, nine verses, uh, 14 through 23. This probably deserves a, a sermon in and of itself, but such is the way that it goes. So he, he finishes this conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. And, and we don't know if they're still there, if this is a different setting, but it says Jesus called the people to them to himself, and he said, me, said to them, excuse me, hear me all of you and understand. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now listen, we've got to just understand really quickly, Kind of the theme that hangs over this whole section of these 23 verses is this, uh, this clash, this conflict between the idea of clean and unclean. Now, this is not a literal physical cleanliness. What this is getting at is the fact, the truth, the beautiful truth that God is a holy, unique, set-apart God who does not know sin. And we are an unholy sinful, uh, dirty-hearted people. And so how can an unholy, sinful people interact and be in relationship with a holy and sinless God? Well, part of the heart of the Mosaic Law was to regulate the interactions of an unholy, sinful people with a holy and sinless God. That is what Jesus is getting at in these verses. See, up to that point, the thinking was we had to keep ourselves clean, ritually clean, so that we could, we could become worthy of God, so that we become worthy of being with him and entering into his presence, and we could actually advance his kingdom by showing how, how righteous and clean and holy we can make ourselves. And Jesus is like, nope, that is not at all the way that it works. This is what he says starting in verse 18. So, uh, just, just, I'm going to read through the end of the passage because we need to hear the whole thing. Verse 18, and he said to them, his disciples are like, we don't get it. And he says, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Uh, time out. Remember who Mark is writing to? Gentile Christians in Rome. Remember, there was a huge debate at that time about whether converts to Christianity needed to submit to the Jewish laws. And here is Mark with a little parenthetical expression making it really clear for his Gentile readers, hey, you don't have to follow the Jewish laws. That was good news for Gentile Christians in Rome. Yes, I will take bacon on that sandwich. (laughs) Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What is Jesus saying here? It's not your outside that needs to be cleaned up. You can wash and wash and wash as much as you want. The problem is not what's on your outside. It's what's on your inside. And the outside is never gonna get clean until the inside is dealt with. And just can we recognize when he talks about the heart here, he is not talking about the muscle that pumps blood. He's talking about the heart in the same way I say that I love my wife or my kids with all my heart. Means I love them with all of my being. He's talking about the the center of our intellect and and our will. He's talking about the essence of who we are. And he is saying, "Your, your hands may be clean, but your insides are dirty. And no matter how much you try and clean the outside, you cannot get to the inside to clean it up. You need to give it to me. I need your heart. Uh, there's, a, there's a story. I, don't, I, can't, affirm, I can't confirm its, its truth, but it makes for a great illustration. There's a story that back in the days when mental health institutions were called insane asylums, that there was a test that they would give to patients to determine whether they should be admitted or perhaps to determine whether they were ready to be released from that place. And this is how the test would go. They would put them in a small room that had a sink that was plugged and the faucet was running such that the sink was overflowing. And they would give them a mop and a bucket. And they would say, I'll be back in a few minutes, please clean this room up. And if they came back in a few minutes and the patient was still mopping the floor, trying to clean up the water that was spilling up over the sink, they knew they weren't ready to be released. But if they had unplugged the sink and turned off the faucet and then mopped the floor, they knew they were ready to be released. And Jesus is saying, you can mop and mop and mop all you want. But until you unplug the sink and turn off the drain, you are not going to be able to clean yourself. There is a question that hangs over this last part of this passage. And it, just, it just is glaring, like, like, what is the question? What is the question we have to ask as we get to the end of Jesus' speech here in verse 23? If, it is, if the problem is our heart, if we are unclean because of our hearts, what is the question we need to ask? How can we be clean? If it's not about washing our hands or, or looking good on the outside, like, you know, you can take a pig and put a tutu on it and a bow and put a bunch of lipstick on it. It's still a pig. And, and, and you can take a, a, a dirty heart and put a tutu on it, and a bow on it, and a bunch of lipstick on it, but it's still a dirty heart. How can we be clean? We need a new heart. And thank God, it's Thanksgiving week, thank God that Jesus is the one who can do it. (laughs) He, He is not asking us to continue to wash the outside. He is saying you could never get clean enough. He's saying you need a new heart. And look at what God tells us in Ezekiel 36. This is what God promises through the prophet Ezekiel that he will do for his, his people. Starting in verse 25. Just read this in light of what Jesus just said. You're unclean because of your heart. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. God is saying I want your heart not in like some devotional sense. He's like, I literally want your heart. I will take your sinful heart and give you a heart of righteousness. I will put my spirit within you so that to follow my laws will actually be a joy to you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And this is just, as we finish up, this is just the heart of the gospel. This, this little kind of weird passage where Jesus is going in hard against these guys who are trying to look good on the outside and not so good on the inside, this is the heart of what it means to follow Jesus with our lives. For all of history, people have been trying to get themselves into God's good graces, and no one has been able to do it because it is not something we can do in and of ourselves. We cannot clean ourselves. We need someone else to do it and the only one who can do it is God. Jesus Christ did not come, live a perfect sinless life, the only one who fulfilled the whole law, and then die on a cross in our place so that 2,000 years later we could put on a mask and try and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and show God how good we are on the outside. He did not die on a cross so that we would come to church in our Sunday best and make it look like we got it all together and we're doing life the way it should be done. He died on a cross so that we could come here and fully expose who we are to him and to the world. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not clean yourself up and then maybe I will accept you. It is come as you are and I will clean you up. He's not looking for our rules. You don't need a, you, you, we don't need your extra rules. He's not looking for our performance. Performing is exhausting. And I know somebody here is weary today, like I'm tired of performing. He's looking for our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel. We, we thank you for just how completely countercultural it is to the world that we live in which says hide your flaws, put put your best foot forward, perform and perform and perform again. If you look good, you are good. And you say that, God, you say that there there is nothing you can do to make yourself good. And that's amazing because it takes the pressure off. God, I pray that you would instill in our hearts and our minds the truth that our only hope is you, that the outside is not really what matters to you. It's what's on the inside. And when what, what's on the inside gets dealt with, the outside will follow. God, speak to us this morning. Encourage us. Turn our hearts to you. And God, if someone is here today and they have not given you their heart, I ask that you would maybe even, even meet with them now. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not gonna have a song of response. And this is a time for you to continue worshiping God. It's also a time for you to do any business with God that you would like to do. If you don't know what it means to follow Jesus with your life, or if you feel His Spirit tugging on your heart today to say, "I, I can do for you what you can't do for yourself," there's no better moment than now to to either figuratively or literally bow your knee before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If there's something else that you feel God speaking to you about about in this moment. Speak back to him. Do that business with God that he has for you this morning. Let's worship, and I'll come back up for the benediction.
1: Hallelujah. Hallelujah for your word, God. Let the church say amen. Let the church Church. Let's sing that together, collectively, all.
0: the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our savior comes and then forever amen Uh, you're loved you're prayed for and you're sent have a great thanksgiving